As you notice, the, our gospel reading for the week takes pains to position John very carefully in time and space. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, St. Luke writes, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was ruler of Galilee and his brother Philip ruler of the region of Eturia and Trachonitis and Lysanias ruler of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, John heard God's word in the wilderness. Now that's seven seats, if you weren't counting, seven seats of wealth, power, and influence in just one sentence. Seven centers of authority, both political and religious. Seven very important people occupying seven very important positions. But God's word doesn't come to any of them. Perhaps the first wilderness lesson, then, is a lesson about power. The gospel highlights a startling contrast between those who witness God's cry and those who don't. In Luke's account, emperors, governors, rulers, and high priests, the folks who wield all the power, don't hear God. But the outsider from the wilderness does. What is it about power that deafens us to God's voice. Well, maybe Tiberius, Pilate, Caiaphas, and Herod can't receive a fresh revelation from God because they presume already to hear and speak for God. After all, they're in power. Doesn't that imply they embody God's will automatically? If not, would they care? They already have pomp, money, military power the weight of religious tradition at their disposal. Maybe they don't need God. But in the wilderness, in the wilderness, there's no safety net, no plan B, no Walmart or National Guard. In the wilderness, life is raw and risky, and our illusions of self-sufficiency melt like a mirage to locate ourselves at the outskirts of power is to confess our vulnerability in, in the starkest of terms. In the wilderness, we have no choice but to wait and watch as if our lives depended on God showing up. And of course they do. And it's into just such an environment, an environment so far removed from the seat of power as to make that power laughable, that the word of God does come. But Luke goes on. Not only is the wilderness a place that exposes our need for God, it's a place that calls us to repentance. Literally, literally a change in direction, a new orientation, a change of heart. Those who answered John's call turned away from their own lives of comfort and control and ventured into the unknown. They left the power grid in order to recalibrate their compass, to discover again true north, and to set out in a new direction. And this is not only a spiritual reality. The benefits of spending time in nature have been well documented. 
Psychological research has shown that natural experiences help to reduce stress, improve mood, and promote an overall increase in physical and psychological well-being. There's even evidence that hospital patients with a view of nature recover faster than do hospitals without such a view. People are drawn to nature with good reason. It has restorative properties. And experiences of nature can affect much more than our mood or our well-being. A series of studies at the University of Rochester found that people who lived entirely, entirely enclosed in man-made environments, perhaps a high-rise in a city, were more likely to develop aspirations that centered on the self, such as financial success or, or an inordinate need for the admiration of others. While people who spent time in nature, in closer contact with nature, even if it's just around the house, whether climbing mountains or raking leaves, or who surrounded themselves with plants and pets, were more likely to aspire to meaningful and enduring relationships and to work for the common good. Perhaps John intuited what science has confirmed. Time spent outdoors or in some communion with the world unmade by human hands can affect our priorities and alter what we think is important in life. We become less self-focused and more other-focused. Our values and priorities shift from personal gain toward a broader focus on community and connection with others. It's enough to make one wonder whether our increasing immersion into virtual reality on-demand programming, computer games, and everything else that keeps us more and more indoors and in a world of our own making might somehow be related to what seems to be an increase in self-centered aspirations for celebrity, wealth, and power. And so Advent begins with an honest, wilderness-style reckoning with our priorities and the direction of our lives. The first three out of four Sundays in Advent place John the Baptist central to the coming arrival of the Christ child. We can't get to the manger unless we go through John, and John is all about repentance. John calls us out to a place where we can be confronted by our own best nature, our truest selves, but he also knows that sometimes it'll take more than a walk in the park to repair the damage. Sometimes it takes repentance from sin. And so we ask ourselves, what do we mean by sin? Well, we sometimes hear that sin is a matter of breaking God's laws or missing the mark the way an archer might miss the, the target or committing immoral acts. And these definitions aren't wrong. But they, but they assume that sin is a problem primarily because it, it angers God. But God's temper is not what's at stake. God is more than capable of managing the divine emotions. Sin is a problem because it ultimate, it's ultimately a refusal to become fully human. 
It's anything, anything that interferes with the opening up of our whole hearts to God, to one another, to creation, to ourselves. Excuse me. Sin is, excuse me, sin is estrangement, disconnection, sterility, disharmony. It's the hopelessness that defeats us before we even try. Sin is apathy, a carelessness, a frightened resistance to an engaged life. Sin is the opposite of creativity, the opposite of abundance, the opposite of flourishing. It is a walking death. And it is easier to spot, name, and confess a walking death in the wilderness than it is anywhere else. Luke suggests that the wilderness is a place where we can see the landscape whole and participate in God's great work of leveling inequality and oppression. Quoting the prophet Isaiah, Luke predicts a day when every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways made smooth. Unless we're in the wilderness, it's hard to see our own privilege and even harder to imagine giving it up. No one living on a mountaintop wants the mountain to be flattened. But when we are wandering in the wilderness, and immense, barren landscapes stretch out before us in every direction, we're able to see what the privileged heights obscure. Suddenly we feel the rough places under our feet. We experience what it's like to struggle down twisting and crooked paths. We glimpse arrogance in the mountains and desolation in the valleys. And we begin to dream God's dream of a wholly reimagined landscape, a landscape so smooth and straight it enables all flesh to see the salvation of God. And so we might ask ourselves, where are we located during this Advent season? How close are we to power? And how open are we to risking the wilderness to hear a word from God? What might repentance look like for you, for me, here, now? Where is God leveling the ground we stand on? And what will it take for us to participate in that uncomfortable but essential work? The word of the Lord came to John in the wilderness. May it come to us too. Like John, may we become brave voices in hard and barren places, preparing the way of the Lord. Amen.